Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And our text this morning will be verses 1 and 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes, as he continues in this letter, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that, you, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer before we walk our way through this text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And again, we praise and thank you for giving it to us so that we can read it, so that we can study it, so that we can know it, to preserve it, so we know that it is unchanged. And so this morning, I pray that you would speak to us through your word and that you would illuminate the truths that are here, protect your word, I pray, and that only what is good and right will be heard. And so I pray that your church will be built and encouraged this morning, I pray, through hearing from you through your word in your name. Amen. If I was to poll a group of Christians and I, and I, and I asked them this question, what is different about Christianity than all other religions? You might get several answers, but I think this answer is probably the answer that's going to ring through. And they're going to say Christianity is about a relationship. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. It's not about keeping a bunch of do and don'ts. It's just a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would say on the surface, that is actually absolutely correct. Christianity is about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But this idea has maybe become so popular and, and has been so understood so narrowly that the, most people today would understand that what it means is this. All I need to do if I want to be a Christian is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. After all, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so that is really the extent of what I need to do. In other words, there's no cost to coming to Christianity. There's nothing that I need to do after that. I just need to profess. We, we talk about easy believism. Just come on in. Jesus is here for you. He wants to make your life better. Come on in. Say this prayer, say these right words, and you're in. And in fact, it has spawned a whole section where we have a, a, an understanding where people teach a non-lordship salvation. Where we come to salvation, we make one profession, we make one mental ascent at one point in our life, and that's it. You're in forever. And the lordship of Jesus Christ can wait, because after all, that's a work and that comes afterwards. And it may not come at all. And so we've ended up with a, a church full of people who look no different than the world and look no different than they did before they came to salvation. Maybe they attend a different kind of meeting now, but the reality of their life shows no difference. And so there has been a misunderstanding in Christianity that when you come, that when you, though you are saved by grace, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that saving faith doesn't come alone, that there are certain things that will take place. In other words, when you come, there is a demand on your life to have a change of behavior. And the Lord Jesus Christ has a lot to say about your life and how you are to live that life. And so our passage this morning is going to help us deal with this issue. How do we deal with the idea that it's, Christianity is not just about a relationship, though it is, but there are also demands on your life. In other words, there are commands in Scripture that actually are, are the railroads, or they are the, the safety pins, or the way that this relationship is to actually be demonstrated out. 
In other words, the relationship is not in a vacuum. It comes with commands on how that relationship should actually function. And so our text this morning, Paul, is going to, he's going to help us with exactly that. So as we come to our text, I first just want to take us back through, and I'm, I'm doing this, you're going to get tired of me bringing us through a context, but I want us to set the context here again this morning because I just want us to see where we're going, where we're, we're going to finish up in this book. We've come through three chapters so far. That's why we're on chapter four. I, I figured that out. And so we, we know that as Paul has started through this book, he, he starts and he, he comes to chapter three and, and he comes to the end of the section of verse 10 and he kind of summarizes everything that he's done in this book already. And he talks and he gives thanks for the Thessalonians. And we remember that he gave, gave God glory for their salvation and what they had done. And then he begins to defend his ministry against those who would attack him and saying that he is a poor philosopher, someone who's just taking care of his, of his own self at the expense of his sheep, of his followers. And Paul says, far from that, I wanted to come to you. I wanted to see you. I had a, he says, I, I, I didn't abandon you. I actually sent Timothy to you. And I wanted, because I couldn't come, I sent Timothy to, to help you. And so he explains, here, I couldn't come to you because Satan kept me from coming to you. I wanted to see you. I wanted to see you face to face. I had an earnest desire to be present together again with you. And then he adds at the end of verse 10, this little phrase. And he says, I wanted to come to you so that I may complete what is lacking in your faith. And this was Paul's concern. I want to fix what's wrong. I want to complete your faith. I want you to come to maturity in Christ. I want your sanctification to be complete. And so Timothy had come back from Thessalonica and he had given a glowing report that they were continuing to be steadfast even under all the opposition and, and all of the persecution. But in spite of that, Timothy brought back an understanding that this church still needed to grow spiritually. They weren't at the finish line. There were things that were still lacking in their faith. And so Paul went on to pray in verses 11 to 13 to pray for those things, to pray for the things that, that was lacking in their faith. And we saw that, that model prayer that Paul had prayed as he begins to transition to deal with what is lacking. So he starts first by, here's what I know it's lacking, I pray for it. I entreat the Lord that he would supply what is lacking but now in verse 4.1, he recognizes that Paul, Paul recognizes that actually, no, God, can you still use me to help what's lacking in you? Though I can't come to you personally, I can now write to you about the things that I know are lacking in your faith so, and, and so that you might grow spiritually. And as Paul does that, as he starts through chapter 4 and 5, he's going to address those things that are lacking in their faith. And I, we can just put these words together. Lacking in faith, the need to grow spiritually, and sanctification. Those are all covering that same thing. If you're lacking in the faith, it means you need to be sanctified, which means you need to grow. And so growing is always dependent upon First of all, knowledge. You can't, you, can't grow, you can't be sanctified in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't know anything about him. And then you have to t have the Holy Spirit take that knowledge and to transform you. And you need to live out in obedience what you know through his power. And so as we see this, we see what's lacking in them maybe what is lacking in us. And so he will... As we go through the rest of this, we will see what maybe we need to add to our faith 
so that we grow spiritually. So in this first section in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, Paul really gives commands about living in a way that is pleasing to God. It's concerned about how we are to please, please God in our conduct. Then we're going to look at chapters 4, verses 13 to 18, Paul's instruction about the de- those who are dead in Christ. He's going to talk about those who have died already before the gathering of Christ, before the coming of presence of Christ. What happens to them? And they're a little bit stirred up about that. And so there's some, some practical uh, implications even for us. What happens to us, to those who died for us? <laughs> those who died in Christ... We, we need to know where they go. And so we have the hope of a reunion with them. And then he speaks at, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. He talks about the day of the Lord. He talks about a future day of judgment and, which will, and also a day of blessing. And he, he speaks of that to them to remind them of what is taking place and to give them comfort. A practical word for us as well. And then in... This fourth section, chapters 5, 12 to 14, Paul deals with church relationships. He deals how do we get along together specifically in the church. He talks a little bit about church discipline. He talks about holy living and relationship to one another. And so he's concerned about the church. And so we have these four areas that he will address as he goes forward to fill what is lacking in in the Thessalonians' faith, faith. and then ultimately to fill in what is lacking in our faith. Now in this first section in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, 1 to 12, we are just going to look at the first two verses here this morning. And really we would say that Paul, as he begins this section, is laying some what we would call foundational principles in order for us to grasp what we need to do. In other words, if we will take these principles and if we understand these principles, they will help us take the teaching and instruction that is coming so that we ultimately are able to be complete in our faith. So he's going to deal with some pretty direct exhortations in verses 3 to 8 dealing with sexual purity and verses 9 to 12 Paul is going to deal with the concept of love love for one another but before he he gives us these things that we are to to demonstrate in our life and how we are to accomplish those he gives us these principles for us to fulfill now he says and what we're going to see this morning really three principles that we should understand or apply so that we are complete in our faith, so that we are completely sanctified. First of all, we're going to see that sanctification is never complete. In other words, sanctification needs to keep going. It doesn't, we don't reach a plateau and stop. Second of all, we see where sanctification starts. Sanctification starts at conversion and keeps going. It doesn't, it doesn't wait. And third, we will see that the call to sanctification comes from the authority of Jesus Christ. It comes by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins this section then in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, Finally then, brethren... Finally then, brethren. Now, when you hear those words, finally, and I know because I've been in church long enough, when the pastor says these words, what's the natural tendency of everybody? We put away our notebooks, we close our Bibles, and we get ready to go, right? And so a lot of pastors actually avoid this finally or last point because they recognize that when, as soon as they do that, everybody checks out. Everybody's done because they think he's done. But the word finally here is probably not the best translation of this word. Because Paul is not concluding here. It's not a term of conclusion. It's rather a term of transition. And we could actually translate it for the rest or further. 
In other words, Paul is not concluding the book. He is saying there are stuff that's, there's ideas left over that I need to finish. After giving you this information, now further, I'm going to give you the exhortations and the, and the call to obedience that you haven't had yet. And so we could really say that as he, as he gives these exhortations, you know the reason for him writing. He wants them to grow in faith. He uses this word in the, in the middle of Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 as well, where he just continually, he gets to this point, and after telling them what he wants to, what he is, they need to know, he now begins to exhort them and tells them what to do. Now you notice this little word brethren again, and again Paul is, is speaking to them as a fellow believer. He again is giving them that term of affection, and he's speaking to them as a family member. In other words, what Paul writes is also for Paul, but Paul wants them to know that they are in the family of God together. They are born of one spirit and have God as their father and Jesus as their brother. And so he begins this section, finally, brethren, I'm, I'm transitioning here I'm further. Here's what you need to know. Well, this is what I haven't told you yet. And this is what he says. We request and exhort you that you excel still more. Now, this is really the way that this, this is the main verb here. And this is the sentence. Paul interrupts himself in the middle here with this, with this, uh, phrase that, that starts with that, that as you received from us instruction as to know how you ought to walk and please the Lord. And so the main, the main phrase here is, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you excel still more. And so he begins this section with, with these two words. He says, first of all, we request... And this is exactly what it sounds like. This is a term that was often used by friends or equals as they asked a request from each other. It was seen in, it was seen in letters as they entreat the, each other to do a certain task. And this is how Paul begins. He begins with what we would call gentle words. He, he's reconciliatory. Paul comes as a, as a gentle shepherd and a gentle brother and he, he implores them towards this goal. But then we come to this second verb. He applies another verb, translated exhort. This is a much more forceful word. It is, it is often used in a military command or for a civil order. Now, it can mean a, a gentle to come alongside, but Paul uses this same word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.11, where he says, Just as you know, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So Paul says, I am, I am exhorting you as a father would his children. Now, the, the, the idea here is there's a, there's a, it's, it's a strong authoritative term without being overly aggressive. It has the idea of the obligation that goes with this term. In other words, there's an obligation to do what is being called to do. I think a good example of this would be in Matthew chapter 8, verse 9. Jesus is dealing with the centurion. And Jesus said, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. He will come and heal his servants. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now listen to this. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. In other words, the command itself and, and the call has a certain obligation and authority. Just like a, a soldier's when his commanding officer says, could you come here? What is he meaning? He's being gentle, but yeah, get over here, right? It's just like with your children at home. 
it's the same thing. You say to them, it's time to clean your room. It's, I think you should, it's, it's a good idea that you get that cleaned up. What are you saying? Gently clean your room, right? And so Paul is saying, listen, when I, when I request this and I exhort this to you, there's an obligation for you to, to obey what I am saying. So what is the obligation then? What, what are they obligated to do? What, what, what is he calling them to do? Well, he says that you would excel still more. That you would excel still more. And this is really the heart of the issue. Paul, and this is the, the main verb here. Paul says, I want you to excel more. This is what I want you to do. Because of their lack of faith, because of their spiritual immaturity, because of the, their, their need to be sanctified, they were to excel still more. So what does it mean to excel? It means to be in excess, to overflow, to be in affluence, to excel, to be in abundance. The implication is that there is considerably more than what is, would be expected. It has the idea of, of an, a river that is overflowing its banks. He says, I want you to be what? Excelling and overflowing over your banks. Paul used this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he spoke in verse 12. When he spoke to the Corinthians and he says, to the Thessalonians and says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you. The same word. I want you to abound. I want you to overflow. He used this in 1 Corinthians 15. Always abounding what in the work of the Lord, overflowing, going beyond what is normal. He prayed for the Philippians in the same way. And I pray that your love what may abound continually, present actively, continually abounding. And so he had, he had asked them not just a certain amount of love, but an excelling and abounding and abundant kind of love. So Paul prayed for them and he wants them to be excelling in abundance, but to be still more beyond where they were, to go farther than where they were. But the question then becomes, what are, the, what are they to be abounding in? You made a big point about they need to abound, Paul, but what do they need to abound in? Well, we have to go to the middle of the verse for that. We'll see the context, t- content given in more detail. He says this, we request and exhort you how you ought to. To walk. This is what you're supposed to be abounding in. This is what you're supposed to be growing in on how you ought to walk. This is the realm in which this increasing and ever increasing abundance should be in. In other words, this is where you're supposed to be increasing is in the way that you walk. Now you'll notice this word ought here. When we hear the word ought, we often think of the idea of it's possible, right? You, 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 ought to, you ought to clean the sidewalk, right? And, and this is not in an authoritative way, but you, know, you, you, ought, to read, you ought to read, have you, have you read that book? You ought to read it, right? So it's not a command. It's, it's got, it, has, it sounds like the idea of there is an option, But that's not what this word has. This word ought isn't a suggestion. It's not just friendly advice, but it comes with the idea of obligation. In other words, it's necessary. We could actually translate it, you must. You must. You could translate this phrase, we request and exhort you you how it is necessary for you to walk it's necessary it's not just a suggestion but it is necessary it is your duty to walk and this is what paul is getting at in other words it's not an option for the believer it's not an option 
again, as he speaks of the word walk, he said, okay, option for a believer. Paul is not just throwing this out there. He's not just saying, hey, look, it might be a good idea. If you truly want your best life now, this is it. All right. This is just obey this and everything will be good. He's not saying, hey, if you're if you want your ministry to be fruitful, this is something that you need to do. In other words, God will bless you if you do this. That's not what he's saying. He's actually addressing the whole congregation here. He's not just and he's not just saying this is for the super Christian. And if you want to be a super Christian, this is what you do. He says, actually, there's an obligation here. And he says, I've gave, I came and I gave you commandments. I gave you instructions. I told you what to do. And he says, they weren't just mere suggestions. There's an obligation for you to obey them. In other words, if you take the name of Christ and you profess his name, if you, as the, as the Thessalonians had, if you have left the, the stones and the idols and turned to the serve the true and living God, then this is the way that you are to walk. You are to walk in this manner. And again, the word walk here has the idea of how to live, how to live before God. How do I live in daily life? And he says, this is how you ought to walk. This is the way that you should conduct your daily life. This is how Paul talks about the Christian life. This is how you are to live out your life. This is a lifestyle. And he says, how are you to walk? How are are you to, to carry this out? You are to walk to please God. You are to walk in a way that pleases God. Now, this isn't two separate commands where he says you you, you ought to walk and please God. He's saying that the walk that you're walking is the walk that actually pleases God. In other words, there's a cause and effect. I walk in the way that God wants me to walk. And when I do that, ultimately it brings pleasure to God. It's actually an astounding concept. So the consequences of of walking brings pleasure to God so that you you would please God. Now it's interesting because I don't know if you think about your Christian walk in this conceptual way very often. It's an important concept in Paul's teaching, but how often do we think my life, the end product of my life, is to bring pleasure to God. That I will, I will in essence, have God's smile because of my behavior in the way that I behave. In other words, do you live your life for his approval? That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Paul's concern was what? To be pleasing to God. To bring God joy. To bring God glory. He spoke of those who didn't work that way in 1 Thessalonians 2.15. We remember the Jewish teachers who were opposing him. They drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but are hostile to all men. There was those who opposed God's ways, and they were not pleasing to God. In fact, he says, many aren't. Romans 8, 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it is not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, what? cannot please God. There's a group of people who cannot please God. But Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 1.10, 
so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is an important concept. And again, another verse that we should have in our mind. And maybe this should be the, a motto that we should be putting on our walls and in our hearts. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be what? Pleasing to him. This is a summary, really, of, of sanctification. Progressive sanctification is exactly this. Walking in a way that pleases God. Is this the object of our life? Do we live in a way that we want to please him? Now again, we recognize this. We don't want to confuse this. He's not speaking of the unbeliever here. He's speaking of the believer. And we don't want to confuse salvation and working for salvation. We don't want to confuse justification and sanctification. They are different. We know that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, apart from any effort, apart from any merit. And then we stand declared righteous before God. But sanctification is now becoming what we are in standing in reality. In other words, we start to become like Christ. We start to live in obedience and we start to grow in Christ and we start to be pleasing to him in the way that we live. And so, for the believer then, we are called to live a life that is continually about pleasing our Savior, pleasing our God and our Redeemer. And we're not doing it. We're not doing it to gain salvation. We're not trying to get in. The Scriptures make it clear. The Gospel makes it clear. There's nothing that we can do. Everything that we stand in righteousness before God is accomplished on our behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. But once we are justified, once we are saved, once we are born again, once we have been made new, then our life becomes about what? Living out who we are and we living a new life that is truly pleasing to God. And so for each one of us who's a believer, everyone who's taken the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this should be our passion. This should be our pleasure. This is what we should delight in. We should be delighting in our Redeemer. Now it's interesting because you look at the Thessalonians and six months earlier, where were the Thessalonians? They were living a life of what? Pleasing the gods of Rome. Their lives were dedicated to that. And in the pagan religion, they really had no idea how to please these gods. They tried to appease them. They didn't really know what the gods wanted from them. And so they lived a life of darkness and, and, a, and a life of stress and a life of never really having peace because they never knew if they could please these gods. It was ambiguous at best. And so they would try everything, sacrifices, superstitions, everything in order to try to please and appease these gods. But then Paul came with the gospel. And Paul preached Jesus Christ. And they turned from those mute, dumb idols to worship the true and living God and now because of their salvation, they had newness of life. And they now for the first time had concrete instructions given to them by Paul on how to please God. They no longer had to guess. They no longer had to hope. They now actually knew what, who this God was and what he required from them. And now they knew how to please their creator and their redeemer. And so this is how we should live. This is how we should live. 
to please him, to make him smile. And Paul says, don't stop living this life. Don't plateau. Don't think that you've reached there. Don't think that somehow you've gotten spiritual enough that you don't need any more. Don't stop striving. Don't start, stop trying. Excel still more. And again to the, to the Thessalonians, he says, just as you already are. In other words, he's not scolding him and saying you're, 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 you've messed up. He's saying, do more. Excel more. You've, you've started well. You're doing well. Keep going. Bowmanville, we've started well. We've started well, but excel still more. Grow still more. Every day should be a life occupied with the desire to be more pleasing to God than I was yesterday. That is what Paul calls us to do this morning. Excel still more. You started well. You're doing well. Now keep going. Keep your foot on the gas pedal. Don't coast. Have your desire, heart's desire to please Him. Ask God to give you back that passion to be pleasing to Him. Last point, number one. Right? Sanctification. On the road to sanctification. So sanctification never ends. Right? Sanctification keeps going. Well, now we see that sanctification begins right away. Sanctification begins at the, it starts now. Sanctification starts now. And we get some clues to this right in our passage here. He says, and, and we really, uh, in this parenthetical area where between these two that's he gives us some historical ideas as to when this command was supposed to start and I think it's very important for us to understand that he says that you received from us in other words these instructions these commands on how to live the Christian life came to you and you received them from us In other words, when we came and we preached to you as missionaries, when we came and gave you the gospel, and and, and again, he's taking them back when they were together. I already gave these things to you. You already received them from me. I don't need to remind you because you've already received. We look at the term received, and we looked at this term before. It means to receive a body of doctrine, some formal teaching. And Paul says, when I gave you the gospel, I didn't just get you saved. I gave you a whole body of doctrine that you were to follow. I didn't just get you in and move on. But I taught you what you were to do as a believer. He used the same word back in First. Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, to refer to the gospel itself, the saving power of Christ. He said, you received the word of God. You received the gospel and it transformed you. But now in chapter 4, verse 1, it shows that growing in in pleasing this to God was the body of material that Paul communicated from the very beginning. In other words, when Paul gave them the commands, when he gave them the instructions, the instructions were in God pleasing. In other words, you follow these commands, you follow these ways, and you will be what? God pleasing. In other words, he communicated what it was 
to live the Christian life and that there was expectations on them. And he did it, what? Right at the beginning. Now, that's important for us to understand today. As we've touched on in the introduction, there's this whole idea that you just come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You just believe. That's all you've got to do. And if we look at Paul and his preaching, he certainly talked about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts, 17, in Acts chapter 17, we won't read there, but Luke talks about Paul preaching the gospel. And you read the text, it seems that Paul is preaching about, just about Jesus being the Messiah and that you need to believe in Him and that He fulfills all the promises and He's the one to come. And that's all you need to know. Just believe. But that's not true. You cannot take Jesus as Savior without taking Him as Lord. And you can't just take him now and then in some future time submit yourself to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't be out giving a gospel to people that says, come to Jesus and if you want, maybe later you can follow him. Maybe you can make him Lord. That's not the way Paul practiced. It's not the way that we should practice. Paul was only there for a short period of time and he had already called them to discipleship. There's a counting of the cost when we come to salvation, and this is part of that. You can't keep living like you were. You're called to live in obedience, to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins at the very beginning as he, as he teaches these disciples, and he says, here's the gospel, but the gospel comes with marching orders that you must follow. When you're saved, you have an obligation to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Right from the beginning, you don't wait. It's not something that you can put off. It's not something that you should delay. And so for us, as we look at this, we must recognize that once you are saved, then immediately the new instructions that are given to you, that you need to start working on your sanctification. Now we know it is ultimately achieved only by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you must place yourself in the position for the Spirit to work. So there's no period of time, this nebulous area where you just simply do what you want and you, and you kind of try Jesus out for a little while and then maybe if things work out for you and you like it, then you, then you go for it. where there's nothing really binding on you because you're just a young believer. That's not what Paul says. He makes it clear from the beginning. You must walk as a person saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you must reflect his character. You must live in obedience. Yes, we offer the gospel in simplicity. Adding anything to the gospel, of course, is not the gospel. It should be anathemized, but... Paul preached the gospel and he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that's what we preach and you will be saved. Confess with the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you will be saved. Yes, salvation comes without works. It comes out with anything else, but we must realize that justification must be followed by sanctification. They cannot be separated if, you are, if there is no sanctification, there has been no justification. It is a natural part of being alive to being in the vine is that you produce fruit. We cannot confuse sanctification and justification. We're not in just sanctification. We are not striving to get salvation, but to please God. And so we must teach sanctification. We must teach what is lacking in your faith, and this is what you must do. Because it is just as harmful and just as wrong to preach a gospel that has no price. To preach a gospel is, that says you can be whoever you want is not the gospel. And so we are called to teach this to those who are His. We must teach.
These are your marching orders. You must march. And so for us, we have to look and say, maybe I haven't, maybe I don't, I'm not going down the road as I should, right? And we have to look and we say, listen, it's your obligation as a believer to start now. Maybe you've taken some, some tiny steps, but this is the time. Delay is disobedience. And ultimately, continuing to delay demonstrates that we haven't been justified at all. Yes, it should scare you. It should put fear in your heart. Because if you're not walking in a way to pleasing him, and you're not starting down this road, then you're in disobedience. And you need to either ask God to grant you repentance for salvation or repentance for your sin and start because sanctification starts now. It starts at conversion at the point of the gospel and it continues until that giant step of justification and death when we go to heaven. Now, just in case you think you're coming down pretty hard. I think you're trying to be the Holy Spirit. What we want to see in, is in point number three is that the call to sanctification comes by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to make sure that as he speaks to the Thessalonians, they recognize this. In other words, they need to understand that Paul is not putting on them a burden like the Jewish fathers put on the Jews. Paul is saying this is something that comes from God and it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and I didn't make it up. He says in the Lord, if we see at the beginning of the verse, he says, I exhort you in what? The Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus. In other words, I, I am I'm exhorting you in the sphere in which you live. In other words, you are in the Lord and therefore the Lord has authority over top of you. You live in that, in that sphere. You have salvation in the regenerated life with the Lord Jesus as your master. And he says, I'm giving you, I don't presume to give you advice based on my personal status or special ecclesiastical prerogatives. But rather, because you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore what? You are obligated to obey the commands that are given. This is the sphere in which you live in. Therefore, you are under his authority. Therefore, you must obey. So he says, I'm giving this to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 2, For you know the commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so now he wants to, he's going to explain it in full. He says, for you know the commandments. In other words, the, 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 the orders that I gave when I came to you and I told you how to be pleasing to God and how to live the Christian life, these are, came with authority. They are, they are coming from, God, from the Lord Jesus Christ. They come with his authority. And he says, for you know this. In other words, he says, literally, perception by sight, the word know means, it describes the absolute positive beyond a chance doubt of knowing something. In other words, Paul is not telling them something for the first time, but he's reminding them of what you already know. You already know the commands that I give you. You've already heard them. And he says, we gave these to you. by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally through the Lord Jesus Christ, the the words the authority of are are put in by the translators. But what he is saying is this, the commandments that are given to you are, are, are given through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he is the source. He's the authority of these commands. He's the one who's giving the commands to you. He's the one who's saying, excel still more. And, he, and excel in what? Walking and pleasing to God. And he says, this is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In other words, he is the one who is sourcing this command. In other words, it's not pastors and teachers or even apostles who've gone wayward who are 
calling you to sanctification and to excel more in your faith and to grow and to fill in what is lacking. He says, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who wrote the commandments, who is writing what I am writing and telling you to do, and therefore you must do it. And so Paul wants to make sure, listen, this isn't man's idea. I'm not putting a burden on you. I'm not putting a yoke on you that you can't bear. This comes through the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he demands of his disciples. And so this morning, Paul has laid down the framework as he's going to start going through various issues on how we are to live in a way pleasing to him. And he says, Recognize these principles. Recognize what is required of you. Recognize that sanctification is something that continues, that you don't rest on your laurels. Make sure that you're not someone who gets satisfied and stop. Sanctification is never complete. Recognize that sanctification starts now. It's not something that you wait for. It's something that you must do. So as I give you these commands, as I give you these exhortations, as I give you this information on how to behave, start now. And ultimately, he says, this call is the, comes through the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be obedient to him, you must follow the commands that he gives. And Paul says, put these in your mind so that as I give you these exhortations, you already understand what is necessary. That you have these principles laid so that you can make the most of these principles that I gave you. And therefore, as Paul said at the beginning of this, verse, of this book, as you read these and as you apply these principles to what I tell you to do, then you too will ultimately have grace and peace to you. And that's what Paul wants you to get from this book. And he says, here are the foundational principles so that you ultimately will have this grace and peace. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity and we thank you for its richness. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would recognize that when we come to salvation, it is the beginning, it is not the end. And that you call us to fill in what is lacking in our faith, to grow spiritually, to be sanctified. And I pray that we would recognize that we're never done, that we need to start and keep going, and that this is required of us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you would burn these principles into our hearts and that we would go then forth and take the commandments that we do know and live in obedience to you in a way that is pleasing to you, I pray in your name. Amen.